Hello and welcome to the Pinnacle Mindset Show. I hope that you guys are all staying safe. Um, and today we have the incredible Rebecca Wilson on the show. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you very much. So would you like to just introduce yourself? Tell us a bit about yourself. Yes. Um, I'll have to not give you my work introduction now because I'm so <laughs> used to being on Zooms for work. Um, yeah, so I'm... Um, I'm 29, I'm from Manchester, and um, my sporting career has sort of um, gone through, I guess, three or four different main sports. So I was a sprinter growing up, quickly realised I was pretty fast, I was beating the the lads in the playground kind of thing. (laughs) Um, I managed to get to um, a Great Britain junior level. Um, and then my coach was very, um, sort of very, very honest, but in a kind way, because sometimes people say, uh, God, that's so harsh. But we knew that the best I would do was a relay squad for um, Great Britain. Um, I wouldn't get an, an, an individual 100 metre spot because I'm five foot two and I've got little legs. And as, as hard as I trained, as much as I wanted it, my, you know, my, my body would not allow it. So I then took the opportunity to trial for bobsleigh. Um, didn't know what it was. Did the whole watched cool runnings with a bag of popcorn. Um, went straight onto the senior squad. And um, that then took me to... Um, the Sochi Olympics in 2014 um, and that's everything that I'd ever wanted since being a little girl um, I often talk about the certificate that I got when I was in primary school and it said uh, it was like star of the week kind of certificate and it said watch out this girl will be in the Olympics oh. and that was when I was eight years old um, so it, it was it was every every ounce of um purpose that I had was I had to make it to the Olympics so I was very fortunate that that I I did that in bobsleigh in 2014 um and then when coming out of that I then transferred across and started playing rugby and I'd never played before never thrown a rugby ball around um but it was very much um that team atmosphere then that I actually grew to love because a lot of my other sports had been very individual. Um, So up until that point, I was literally that very, very focused, small world um, athlete, really. Um, I'm one of five children. Um, My my mum and dad worked incredibly hard to make sure we never went without you know it was Sundays that my dad was driving us up and down the country to competitions and I have a huge love for Motown because they they were my my dad's songs in the car um and then sort of coming out and widening my world a little bit uh, starting working in 2015 um I work for a, a charity for a foundation with um with young people um, and you start to assess and understand the, the wider impact of life. You get, you get out of your little sporting bubble 
Um, and I guess it's since then that I've been really passionate about talking um, about some of the challenges and some of the hardships and, and mental health um, because that was my experience was um, I really struggled even throughout my sporting journey. Um, so, so yeah, I very proud of my, my huge quads. I don't put in skinny jeans, um, still five foot two, try and still race everyone. Um, but, um, yeah, I try and be as, as real and as humble and, and stuff as possible and, and talk about what I can and hope that that resonates with some people and, uh, and help some people. Um, and, and I love a good brew. <laughs> what an amazing story that's incredible um you've basically just given us a 411 of your entire life um <laughs> and I think it's so like Cool Runnings is one of my favorite films so I just find it so interesting that you're just already relating to it um now obviously there's that perception of the link between athletics and bobsleigh do you think mm -hmm. that had a massive part in your bobsleigh career um tentatively yes um I think it was the transition that the sport was going through though so um there is that link um however in terms of the history of bobsleigh it was very heavily um the armed forces that are involved and that's where the majority of athletes came from because it was the armed forces that have um a lot of the inter-services competitions, they would allow um, soldiers out on leave um, to be able to uh, compete or go, go and do two or three weeks skiing or bobsleighing. And um, so when I went in, actually, I was sort of one of the few athletes um, and it was how the sport was developing into being a professional funded sport that they started to think, right, OK, if we're going to challenge medals on a global stage, we need to start looking at how we recruit. Um, so it was a phone call now by, by my now best friend um, inviting me to go down and say, what they did was, I think, looked, looked at the rankings and, and took the top. 10 girls in the country for 100 metres and invited them down. So um, absolutely, you, you've got to be quick, you've got to be powerful, you've got to be fast. Athletics, cool runnings, all of that. But um, it's only been probably in the past 10 years that it's it's become more of a professional sport. Um, and it's still heavily influenced by the armed forces. A majority of our coaches are... Um, have been in the army, have been in the 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 navy, um, RAF, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, so, wow, that's so amazing! I didn't know that. Um, every day is a school day. <laughs> <laughs> it um, is at the moment on Zoom. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> so I'm interested. How is it going from a very summer sport to a winter sport is there a challenge with that I mean we don't get much snow in this country generally I mean we've had a bit recently but <laughs> um it's cold <laughs> um 
I think when you sort of isolate what it is that you're doing, it still makes sense to your body. You still have to be in the gym, running fast, pushing heavy things. So the majority of my training didn't change. I mean, I did the the run up to the Olympics was um, I trained in Runcorn on the side of a dual carriageway, pushing a, a prowler sled. My coach went and got a uh, like a gardening trolley from home base, stuck some handles on it, fixed the wheels and that, and then we put weights on it and, and that's what I pushed in a car park. You know, it was as raw as that. Um, so in terms of the training side, it, it was it was very basic because it, it was more the physicality that you needed to do the sport. Um, and then when it came to sort of uh, going across to, to Europe and, and America, Canada, um, you're absolutely right. There's, there's no track in this country. The only facility we have is at Bath University and there's a, a push track, which is like a running track material and uh, the bobsleigh is on wheels um, and, you, and you can run, push, jump in and practice, you start. But if you want to do anything on the on the ice, on the snow, you, you've got to go abroad. Um, so, yeah, the only difference really was that you you had to get used to early mornings. It was gorgeous, though, the sun out, you know, it's the typical pictures of the Alps and all that with the, you know, the snow and the sun. Um you got used to loving leggings because you wear like four pairs a day. Um, football socks up to your knees, keep your calves warm. Um, a, a good gilet and a hat. And um, fashion wasn't a thing at all. <laughs> like I look back now and I think, oh my God, they were a horrendously outrageous pair of leggings that I just w- walked around in. And um, But... Yeah, the, the transition wasn't that difficult. Um, when I when I look back at it now, I was very... I, I wish I could go back to some of the places now because they were, they were gorgeous, but I just sort of stayed in the hotels of the world for a week and then you moved on. So yeah. you didn't get to see much. Um, but yeah, the, the physical transition wasn't wasn't too difficult really because it was just all about your physicality you just had to get used to warming up in a car park and pushing a sled in a you know in a um side of a dual carriageway and you you just had to and I think we did box jumps on the side of a like a grip box you know and you you just had to make it work nothing was fancy nothing was purpose-built um 10 points for creativity (laughs) exactly I find it amazing really when you think about how athletics is and how much purpose built like how much science goes into it compared to training in a car park (laughs) yeah and it it just shows really like you know all these box jump stuff that costs five, six hundred quid for this box, you know, and we were jumping on top of a grip box or up steps. Um, we'd use the lines on a, um, 
netball court that we, you know, we, we, we turn up at a place and go, oh, look at that, that's good. There's a netball court over there. We can run on that. And um, there's certainly, we're very, we're very quick nowadays to think that we need everything and we need it all purpose built. And yeah, okay, it's nice, but you, your body doesn't know where you are. Your body is responding to the training you're doing. Yeah. Um, so the, there's there's lots of ways, and I think being in a in a national lockdown and stuff is probably brought out some of that creativity in us. You know, we've all been running. We've been. Uh, I bought a skipping rope two weeks ago. I've not skipped since I was in the playground. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to skip because um, thirty, you know, ten minutes of skipping is is a thirty minute run, and now I can just skip for ten minutes. So I'm out on that decking in the garden skipping and I yeah I think I think it's good it helps you be creative and and stuff and not rely on all of the fancy facilities yeah definitely so let's talk about your career in bobsleigh what would you say was your greatest achievement uh that's always a tough question um because without a doubt um you know, I was, I'm still that sort of young eight, 12 year old from Manchester who had this big dream. And you'll know yourself, you know, some days you still, you still wake up and you think, God, how, how have I got to this age now? And I still sometimes feel like that vulnerable little girl. Um, so definitely making it to the Olympics was huge. You know, that to be able to um get that Olympic ring tattoo which had set my heart on um was big but um I'd say probably my greatest achievement was winning the world junior championships in 2011 um no um no British pair had ever won the world junior championships male or female um we beat two um, Olympic medalists, previous Olympic medalists. Um, and I got to do it with my best friend, which was even better. I got to do it in Park City. And that was one of our favorite places because all the outlets were in Park City. So <laughs> you could go to Abercrombie and get like, you know, Abercrombie and Fitch hoodies for like five pounds. And we spent ridiculous amounts of money. Um, the whole experience of that year was um, just amazing because there was no expectation and yet we achieved so much. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the turning point for the sport as well. So because we, um, because we won gold there, UK Sport then funded um, the team for the next four years. So without that achievement from us, um, the sport wouldn't have moved forwards in terms of its professional status. Wow. So um, that's definitely got to be my, my, my biggest achievement. I will I think, never, ever forget winning that. It was incredible. Yeah, I would definitely be saying that over the Olympics because just wow. I think it's so interesting um, the way you've just worded that and you said, obviously, that you just didn't have the pressure and still perform so well. Do you think that athletes do perform better with less pressure? 
Um, I'd have to argue yes. I think obviously we all respond to pressure and healthy pressure. We all sometimes need a, a kick up the backside to really get those last little bits of, of what we're capable of out. But I think once you start looking at the top end of athletes, there is um, there is an intrinsic motivation. There is an intrinsic pressure. We're all going to be pushing ourselves. Um, and we've almost prove, proven that already because we're, we're a group of, 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 of a small number of people who are, who are, you know, performing on an elite level. So to then add pressure from the outside, I think sometimes can be the tipping point for some athletes, depending on their, their character and, and their ability to manage it. So I think, yeah, in short, I would argue that the majority of athletes would um, put that pressure on themselves. Mm. Um, and it, and less pressure could, could actually, you know, we, we see it all the time with someone that comes out of nowhere and, and wins and the underdog, you know, we talk about the underdog all the time and, and we, they're sometimes the greatest stories because we're like, oh, wow, look, they've, they've come from nothing and they've achieved such such great achievements. And I think that is because, you know, they've been focused on the self, they've put the pressure on themselves. And without that external pressure, they've just been able to get the job done that they were there to do rather than all the politics of, of everyone else trying to put things on your shoulders. So... I'd have to argue yes for that for that one. Interesting. I think it's just so interesting how, um, and we'll probably come on to it in a little while, but obviously when I was doing my research for this episode, there was the BBC article about you coming out about your self-harm. And at mm. the bottom there was actually a clip and it was um, the sports director basically talking about how... Um, elite athletes have so much pressure but I think that we forget that it's not just elite athletes it's not just the people who are like at the top level it's also people who are in the middle working mm. towards that and I think that it's so interesting what you are saying about the pressure that athletes put on themselves because I know from personal experience how much like athletes do put pressure on themselves um, moving on from your greatest achievement, what would you say was your biggest challenge? Mm. Um, my biggest challenge was probably um, That's a, that is a tough one. <laughs> I'd probably say it was trying to um, deal with the thought that I might not make it. And, and I guess it it links in with what you've just said with the, the athletes that are, that are still trying to um, find their way a little bit. Um, I will always remember we had a sports psychologist that was part of the squad and we all had sessions with her 
and she said to me, um, what's going to happen if you don't make the Olympic team? And I was like, she has just said the most offensive uh, sentence to me. Like, what do you mean if I don't make the team? Because that was everything. Um, and she said, yeah, but life will still go on. And I was like, is she mad? Life will go on. My life won't go on. Um, and it was a little bit like, she was like, yeah, but your family is still going to be here. You're still going to sit around the table next Christmas. Life will still go on. People will still go to work. People will come home. And I was like, rah, this woman just doesn't get it. Like, um, and I think it was trying to keep a um almost that that persona that um you had to be performing all of the time and that was exhausting because if you dropped off if you didn't train one day if you highlighted a weakness to you know, your um, your direct rival, they then had one up on you. Um, and especially in bobsleigh, you share a room. So generally how it works with the teams, you have your driver and then two brakemen or brake women. Um, so we had Paula as our driver and then there's always two athletes and that, that then was the GB1 team. And the so that the driver didn't favour one or the other in terms of the, the push athlete, the push athletes shared a room together. So you're sharing a room with your direct rival wow. and you're sharing a room with the person that you're competing against to get that one spot on the team for either a World Cup, World Championships, Olympic Games. And it was everything. So it was like what time you went to bed and it was... Uh, what you did in your downtime it was what you talked about it was um you couldn't lie in bed at night and cry or think that god today was really hard because you didn't want to expose that to the person that you were against um so that was probably the hardest thing it was trying to like stay at that level whilst being in an environment that just didn't let you kind of breathe that was the hardest thing I can imagine that sounds so challenging um I don't even know what I think I would do like it's so hard to even imagine because it's it's the same as when professional athletes announce that they've either been injured or that they've struggled mentally it's always after it's never during um and I think that is because people are so not wanting their rival or competitor to even know until after like you see so like so many athletes are coming out about mental health after they've retired and that's amazing but it's always after they've retired and I think that's so interesting the way that sport culture has grown would you agree with that 100% because why we're still fighting a little bit of a stigma. Um, and I think we've moved on, God, heaps and bounds. You know, we know that 
anyone that suffers with their mental health is or a, or a mental illness it's not weak at all um and we are fighting that stigma <clears throat> but why would you expose that to your direct competitor yeah you know it's it is it's it's tough and the amount of times I walked around a big under underground car park in a Canadian hotel like on the phone to my mum crying my eyes out and it was the only space of respite that I had um you know I never thought about my mum at that time I was so sort of thinking about myself um <clears throat> She must have dreaded answering the phone to me when I was away because I you regress into that, you know, pick up the phone to cry to mum. Yeah. Um, and bless her, you know, she went through that journey with me 10 times or more, you know. Yeah, I think, like, it must be so hard on parents as well. Like, I think we forget about the parents that have dragged them to morning training. Like, the amount of half or mornings my parents did like yeah. it's so so people forget it like yeah don't think about how much parents actually do so if you're a parent listening thank you <laughs> yeah big time it's so um it's just kind of expected isn't it and it's oh yeah oh well that's my job and you know but and, and not every not every athlete or I mean, we're talking about athletes in this instance, but obviously there's so many other areas of um, commitment in the world that people will have put time to. But it's um, it just shows that this is a big thing in the work I do now with young people is a lot of um, the young people I work with don't have that parental backing. Mm. And they don't have someone getting up to get them to training or driving them around. You know, I've got young athletes that walk an hour to get to my session. Um, they bike everywhere because they don't have a car. And that isn't me thinking, oh, they don't have a car or looking down on them in any way it's not that it is just shows that um i think that that level of sort of again it is commitment isn't it? it's that level of commitment that um goes unnoticed a little bit and how some of us have a head start yeah without even knowing about it yeah for sure yeah really agree with you on that one so briefly, you touched on what I like to refer as the athlete identity crisis. Um, athletes seem to have a massive struggle with their identity, and obviously it's massively put into the sport that they do. Um, do you think sport could ever move away from that? Um, Quite a tricky question. <laughs> No, and the reason I'm going to sort of just straight out answer with no is that <clears throat> I've talked a lot about this in the past and you do define yourself um, by your, your athletic ability. Um, and I think we are making some way 
in terms of ensuring that um, when athletes retire or if they are younger athletes that they are part of academies or anything like that, that they still do their college or think about careers. And, and I think we've progressed in that sense that um, we are doing more of that. But I think psychologically, um, yes, you might be able to provide a qualification for someone alongside them doing their sport. But if you are a aspiring athlete, psychologically, you're still going to be focused on the that ability and that and that. Um, those traits that you have to become an athlete because at the time the other side of it doesn't hold as much importance Mm. for you so I'd have to say that I don't think we'll get away from it anytime soon I think we're in terms of the stigma and the, the mental health input um it's very varied you know yes we talk about it a lot but it will definitely depend on who and what input athletes have as they're um going through their sport and as we mentioned before you know uh, when you get to an elite level all of a sudden um you have a nutritionist and a sports psychologist and you have access to all these things but it's the years and years of of getting to that point that you start to develop the the, the these mindsets and and this self worth and what you attribute it to and 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 that's the time that we need the input. I would agree um, with that one hundred percent. I think that a lot of the focus is on the elite side, and yeah. I think that's great because they are obviously the ones who are have more pressure like external pressure but Mm -hmm. I think that in terms of the pressure the way that they perceive pressure or the way that they perceive the events it comes from how it's been when they were a kid Um, and I think we forget about the fact that they've come from little 11 year old kid that was constantly going to the athletics track or constantly going to the football pitch um and I 100% would agree with you. I think that it is definitely from a kid's perspective that it kind of needs to change. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely agree that it's definitely going in that way. And um, you kind of answered a question that I already had, but how much support psychologically and physically did you receive? Um, I'd have to say I did receive a lot of support. But I would also argue that it wasn't the right support mm-hmm. because um, what what we like to do as well, unfortunately, is tick a box. And I think if if we have a list of how a, a governing body needs to be run and how we need to support athletes, and we say right, okay, um, they need a training plan tick, they need. Um, you know, their kit tick, they need a venue tick, they need a nutritionist tick, they need supplements tick. 
I think we've got in that cycle of, um, okay, uh, sports psychologist or um, people to help help you manage pressure, stuff like that. And that was provided for me. Uh, it, yeah, the majority, not in athletics, I hadn't ever reached that level to, to receive that. So up until the time I was 18, even though I was in a, a junior GB athlete, I never saw anyone in, in that side of support, um, which I guess links back to what we've just said about needing it earlier. Um, in bobsleigh, in British bobsleigh, yes, they provided that. But actually, I remember quite quickly, um, one of the um, sports psychologists saying, um, I can't help this girl wow. because... It's nothing to do with the sport that she needs support on. Um, it's not her ability to manage pressure or the routine that she's in or having a plan A or a plan B or anything like that. It was more deep-rooted in terms of understanding who you are as a person. Um, and I think we like to focus on the environment we're in, i.e., you're in sport, you're an athlete, so let's focus on how you manage that environment. Mm. But that, for me, is like judging a book by its cover kind of thing, and there's all these pages inside that we're a human being, we're, um, we're vulnerable, we are um, trying to find our way in a big, vast world, and... Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's where we haven't got to the core of, of supporting people, athletes, because we're judging people by the environment that they're in rather than you're a human being, let's break things down and, and let's build you up because we will, of all, it's, it's counselling kind of really, I think. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a sense of... Um, you have to have had this really adverse experience and, and will help you get through it. Um, no, it's more our lives. Everybody has a different path. You can grow up in the same house as someone, be the same, same child, um, the, you know, the same um, son or daughter and stuff, but still have a different experience and a different path. And we all have things that shape who we are. Mm. Um, and some of those will be positive, but some of those will be negative, depending on what stage we're at when things happened. And that's what's going to shape who we are and how we respond to things. And um, it's breaking down all of that, really, and looking at the person rather than the environment. Mm. Um, but that's a very, very big job for a governing body or to try and look at everybody as an individual. And I think that's why it's still a challenge because it's time yeah. and it costs and it's very difficult to, to be able to give everybody everything they need is very difficult. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think it's amazing how many clubs now up and down the country are starting to have a sports psychologist in their club 
But then it obviously comes down to, is that the club's responsibility or the governing body's responsibility? And I think just what you said there, it's definitely such a difficult balance to try and find. Um, but yeah, like it's so interesting, the fact that you have said so much about the pressure and obviously you did struggle mentally with the pressure and it's very interesting the way that that kind of appeared and hand like handled so um yeah would you like to talk more about that um yeah so I think the majority of um the challenge was when I was in bobsleigh um and as I alluded to before with having to sort of share a room with your direct rival and and constantly be performing um you kind of when you're an athlete well you know I I refer to being an athlete because that's my experience but I think anyone else listening to this podcast everyone will have their own identity that they link themselves to and um to be able to keep that going um I felt like I didn't have an outlet because I I had to reach the Olympics Mm. and off it wasn't it wasn't an option not to to make it um and I think that sort of potentially goes across everyday life as well that you know people have to make deadlines or they need that promotion they need that money they need to provide for their family and when there is no give or no outlet from having to perform that's when everything builds up Mm. and um I talk to my kids now, I, I always say my kids and people think I must have like 50 kids, the, the young people I work with. And I, the analogy I use is, is this sort of stress bucket. And if your body was a bucket and we're gonna write down all these different things and start filling up this bucket, if there is no hole in the bottom, no tap, no, nothing letting it out, it's gonna build up and overflow. Mm. And that's our body. And we started to hear all the time now about, you know, um, mindfulness and meditating and having time for yourself, coming off social media. We're starting to talk about little ways to sort of reduce that that pressure, but that was, wasn't anything that was talked about when I was an athlete. Mm. And um, as I said before, you know, the amount of times that I, I just got away from everyone generally in a car park or I'd go for a walk or get away from the team hotel and there was no way at all to get away from the environment I was in mm-hmm. and that's what led to the severity of the, the self-harm that I then got in a cycle and and I never even called it self-harm until afterwards yeah. like talk about because I never even thought about what I was doing it was um such intense emotion Mm. um 
that I wanted to feel pain because that made sense. If you um, cut your legs or your arms, you can see that cut, that pain, that blood is a direct um, outcome to what you've just done. Yeah. So you know that, oh, that hurt. I just cut myself. Mm. Makes sense. And emotion, an intense emotion, just never made sense and, and, and sometimes still doesn't now. It gets to that point where there's no outlet and there's nothing that you can see of why you're feeling like that because it's all happening internally and in your mind and in your brain. Um, and then I think I got into a, it, it became a habit. Yeah. It became the way that I, I dealt with things that it got too much. I couldn't manage it. And it was a way potentially looking at it now. And I've read up a lot about things. I've talked about it a lot. And it's a way of regaining control. Yeah. When so much is out of your control, the one thing that you can control is hurting yourself. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, for anyone listening, if you have struggled with that, it's, it, I always say now, and people are quite surprised by, by it, but it's okay. Because someone once said to me, you know, you'll stop when you're ready. Mm. And I think as long as you, um, make sure that it's kept clean and what you're using isn't, um, <clears throat> you know, going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, going to be, uh, affect your skin or your body or get an infection and stuff like that. There's a reason why this is happening and to try and just stop doing that or to judge someone for that isn't going to help at that time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, the, 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 my two main things so I, I did cut a lot um, and banged my head which I guess makes sense now because if, if you've got so much going on and you, you just cannot manage it and it's all in your head it makes sense that you'd bang your head yeah. but when you know you, you think about it and, it and it's something that I'm haven't talked about a lot because it, it sounds silly to talk about it but um I go to the point of you know I was dizzy I had concussion um almost knocked myself out because I literally had, had whacked my head against a brick wall to the, to feel something and because I was so frustrated that I was feeling that way yeah um and 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 I didn't share it with anyone I didn't let anyone know or see it because still had to try and make it to the Olympics mm. and I didn't want them to put me on a plane home and say oh you're not well or you're not able to do your sport because I could get up the next day and my quads were fine and I'd push that sled and I'd push it fast yeah. you know it, it, it didn't change my physical ability mm. but for a lot of the time I was not a well girl at all yeah and so when you transitioned out of bobsleigh, did that 
help or did that did you have like a bit of a struggle because obviously you just said your identity was very much in that Mm. how was that transition out of the sport initially it was horrendous because um I attributed everything about myself to my physical ability so being able to um you know, be 0.01 faster than someone else and mm-hmm. um, be strong and be fit and be fast. Um, and sport gives you that instant feedback. So you push a sled, you jump in, you get a time. You run a race, you win the race, you've come first, you've come second, you've come last. Mm. You get instant feedback. And then all of a sudden, I was out of that world and there was nothing telling me how I was doing or nothing telling me um, that you've done okay today, you've done well today, or this is how you could improve on yesterday. Um, Nothing told me that. And... For 18 months after I retired and came out of the sport, um, the British Athlete Commission, uh, a young man, I said, young man, I'm being very kind there, he's not a young man at all. Um, he'll probably listen to this and laugh now. <laughs> he's, um, I met the right person at the right time. Uh-huh. And he was the, he, he led on the British Athlete Commission and he um, funded 18 months of counselling um, and support through the Priory, which is a private mental health hospital. Um, so I was, I was there every single week for 18 months. Um, and a lot of that was the transition of me trying to see myself as Bex and not Bex bobsleigh or Bex the athlete um, and it within that time as well I came out as um, as being gay mm-hmm. and so it helped in that transition as well in that process because for so long I didn't even think about my sexuality because that was, you know, who I was or wasn't attracted to or a relationship was not in my mind because that held no bearing on getting to the Olympics, you know. And then all of a sudden, you're in the real world, you've got to get a job, you need money, you want companionship, you don't have a teammate that you share in a room with anymore. You go into bed alone Mm. with all these thoughts and feelings and then you start to think about relationships and and who you are and what you want out of life and oh it was such a, a minefield of kind of um exploring the the world because my world was was tiny yeah. you know so um i was fortunate in terms of having that support um but it was really tough really hard yeah um, I imagine yeah um obviously now you are in rugby 
What mm-hmm. made you pick up a rugby ball? Um, I was sat, I, I got a placement at a physiotherapy um, company. They um, supported me before the Olympics. Uh, they funded all my treatment. Um, and they gave me a six-month placement to work with them after the games. And we sat round. Everyone wrote a sport on a piece of paper, folded it up, and put it in a cup. I took out a piece of paper, and it said rugby. And that's why I started playing rugby. <laughs> oh, I love um, so, yeah, literally that. It was like, right, okay, what can Bex do next? That's amazing. And we all wrote something, um, and, I, and I pulled out rugby. So not long after that, my dad drove me down to England Rugby Union Sevens trials. So they were doing a huge, um, you know, trialling for getting uh, the Sevens programme up and running and looking at athletes transitioning across from different sports. Um, and I remember going down to that and thinking, what on earth am I doing? Like, um, again, my dad sat there all day while I trialled. Um, and they said, you know, physically, your heads and shoulders above everyone else, understandably. Uh, you need to join a club and start catching and passing a ball. You know, you need to get your skills up and stuff. And so I did. I joined... Uh, my first rugby union team, um, Waterloo, uh, travelled an, an hour, an hour and a half, three times a week. Um, played um, in the Premiership for a couple of years. And then I transferred across to Rugby League. So I went to the dark side or the better side, whoever whoever's listening. Um and went to trial for Warrington. Um, yeah, Warrington Rugby League team, went to trial for them, and I just fell in love with that squad. That's where I am now with Warrington Wolves women's team. Um, the culture that they have um, and the leadership team there are just spot on. And, and I always talk about people I'm fascinated by people. I love people. And the the mix of people there, they're so down to earth. And they've created the environment that I've always wanted and needed. And that that kind of nurturing, um, it's it's about you first environment. Um, and they've done really well with that. Um, so I'm I'm hoping that I'm not going to touch in all the wood that I can see now, that that this is going to be my team now until I retire from sport. I mean, that sounds like a dirty word right now. Um, I think I'll be that that 100-year-old old woman on YouTube still running a race for sure. I don't think I'll ever be able to let it go. Um, but the culture that Warrington have created is just, it's just fantastic. Um a lot of people can learn from that. Um, yeah. And I think businesses and 
uh, and things that are, are starting to go that way. We're, we're starting to talk about the culture and the environment and what we stand for. And um, as we strive for a diverse world and an equal world, we're talking all the time about um, what people stand for and, and, it, and it's not defined by the colour of your skin, your religion, your sexuality. And I think because we're moving that way in the world, the one thing that actually links every human being together is, is the, the qualities and the, the morals that they stand for. And um, I'm a big advocate for sort of trying to talk about that and... Yeah. And I've got it on my wall behind me here. And it says, what do you stand for? Um, and it's a question I ask a lot of people. What, what, why, what do you live your life for? What, what, what is it that makes you, you or, you know, and I think um, when we can, if we can talk about that more, mm. we're going to get the culture right more and we're going to get away from those tick box exercises and and this rat race that, that we're living in you know everyone wants to go and work in in an, another country because the british just don't know how to put their laptop down and finish work at five o'clock and yeah. and tomorrow we'll we'll wait your work will wait yeah you know well wow I could sit and talk to you all day, um, <laughs> but I don't want to keep you that long. So my final question is if you could, if we obviously lived without COVID um, and you could invite people back from the dead, um, what three people would you invite to a dinner party and why? Do I have to bring them back from the dead? Well, you don't have to. <laughs> um... Again, I ask people this question. Um, Amanda Gorman, 100% would be round my table. Um, she is the young poet that spoke at um, the inaugurate, the, I'm not going to spell it, inaugurate, I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, um, at Biden's party, let's just say that. Um, the young, the young poet there, I was just, I have a huge crush on her, like the, her words um, and just her, um, her presence and, and there was a picture put on uh, Instagram afterwards of um, three young black girls looking up at the TV um, and she was there in the White House doing her, po uh, her doing her, the poem, and I saved that. It's on my phone. It's my background on my phone because a huge thing that I I tell my kids all the time: you cannot be what you cannot see. And some people are brave enough to be a little bit of a lone wolf or change the the manuscript. And I just think she was brilliant absolutely amazing so definitely have her around my table um who else would I have um Peter Kay for sure oh interesting um I just think he's hilarious he's down to earth his sketch 
that he did sort of 10, 15 years ago with garlic bread and um, where's all the pens gone out the pen part and labeling the videos when you were a kid. That was my family. That was my dad. The amount of times my dad said, I put a new pack of pens here last week. Where have they all gone? So the, that sit, sort of situational, observational comedy, I just love it. Um, so I, I think, you know, we always, everyone needs to laugh. So he would definitely be around my table. Um, how many people can I have around my table? Three. We've got one more. Three. I've got one more. Um, okay, so poetry. Um, I've got a poet. I've got an inspirational young person. I've got um, Peter Kay. Um, Adele. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, love Adele. I think she is not been afraid to just kind of just be her as an artist. And I love her. Um, she's definitely the the songs I sing in the shower, like my guilty, <laughs> guilty pleasure song. I'll belt out um, stuff from her. So yeah, I think that's interesting actually because everyone that I've just spoken about is it's been words, yeah. words and commentary. So sing. I've got a sing uh, a poet and a comedian. Um, yeah, I think that'd be a cracking dinner party. That's interesting. I've had so many different people say so many different names, but I've never had any of those three. Have you not? Um, no. So that's so interesting. But um, if people want to find you, where would they find you? Um, in my pyjamas, on my sofa. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm on, so Instagram, uh, BexGB5, I think um twitter i need to down update my app and get back on it um again i'm uh bex gb5 i think on there as well um the foundation that i work for and, and i sort of head up the diamondal sports foundation so if you're in greater manchester and you want to learn more about what we do and oh you've got children or um or you're a business or a school or anything like that and you want me to come in and bore you all to death with my talks um yeah the Diamondal Sports Foundation is who I work for um probably Instagram I'm on Insta all the time message me on there and um I'll be I'll be happy to answer any any questions or worries that you have I'll be an agony aunt for anyone <laughs> I love it amazing well thank you so much for coming on the show um, as always, please be sure to like, subscribe, share, all that fun stuff. And stay safe. I feel like I have to add that at the moment. But yeah. have an amazing day. Thank you very much. Cheers, Sophie. Mm -hmm.